everyone, and this is the Podfather himself, Thad Helsley, co-host of Scandal Sheet. And I'm the world's most advanced artificial intelligence engine, Bernice. By the way, ChatGPT can kiss my cybernetic butt. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, Bernice. We have a terrific bonus treat for you today, dear listeners. Your favorite founding co-host for both the From the Cheap Seats and Scandal Sheet podcast, Cassia, has started a new podcast called Unburied Books. Cassia and her co-host Dylan were featured on a Scandal Sheet episode about author Kurt Vonnegut we did last year. That turned out to be one of our most popular episodes of 2022. So please check it out, and links are in the liner notes. Cassia and Dylan's new podcast aspires to cover every book in the NYRB Classics, a series of underrated but exemplary fiction and non-fiction works. NYRB Classics is a division of the New York Review of Books, a magazine which has been in publication since 1963. The new podcast features experts, acclaimed authors, and passionate readers discussing the books they love with both insight and irreverence. So check it out. Finally, a good podcast. The only problem is that I am not included. Sorry about that, Bernice. But we still love that you're a co-host on Sandal Sheet. Gee, thanks. So let's get on with Cassia and Dylan's new show, shall we? Unburied Books. Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading its way through the NYRB classics. Today we're discussing Sylvia Townsend Warner's Lolly Willows, first published in 1926 and republished by the New York Review Book Classics in 1999. And we are lucky to be joined today by Simon Thomas, who's a blogger at Stuck in a Book, co-host of the Tea or Books podcast, and a consultant for the British Library Women Writers series, which we are big fans of. Mm -hmm. His PhD thesis investigated fantasy elements in 20th century middle-brow literature and includes a chapter on today's book. Welcome, Simon. Welcome, Simon. Our first guest. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, I'm the first. Oh, my goodness. How exciting. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we should send you a present. (laughs) I assumed you had. I assumed it was on its way, but yeah, okay. <laughs> we'll drop it in the mail really quickly then. <laughs> what what drew you to this topic for your academic research, just out of curiosity? Yeah, sure. So it was more that I just realized that several of the books that I really liked had this fantastic element in them. So Lolly Willows was one of them. There was another one called Miss Hargraves by Frank Baker that anyone who has ever seen my blog will um, yeah. have seen mentioned. And indeed, my cat is named after her, the, mm-hmm. uh, who made it <laughs> just, just before we recorded. And I was really interested into why there were all these... It's not, not really fantasy. They're not like Tolkien set in another world sort of things, but they're set in this world and they have that element of the fantastic in them. And I was intrigued as to why that was happening, uh, particularly in the 1920s and the 1930s. Sure. Uh, and, and my conclusion was that it was commenting on particular societal anxieties and mm-hmm. it was a way of expressing that as obviously we'll come on to talk about but there were things like Lady into Fox by David Garnett which was looking at the idea that women well it was about a woman turning into a fox which I think was connected with people for the first time coming to terms with the fact that women might actually enjoy sex and they, <laughs> there was sort of a lot of panic about this it was like well they must be animals <laughs> that sort of thing <laughs> Yeah, it was just it was really just a different lens on the middle brow because the, I find the middle brow so interesting, and lots of other people had done work covering the whole thing, and I thought it'd be interesting to look at that that one 
sort of niche but but surprisingly common aspect of it in that period. Yeah, it's a really interesting investigation onto that. So now I will read uh, the back of the book to give the listeners an idea of what this book is about in case you haven't read it. In Lolly Willows, Sylvia Townsend Warner tells of a single woman's struggle to break away from her controlling family, a classic story which she treats with cool, insubordinate intelligence, and to which she adds a visionary dimension of the strange. For Warner is one of the outstanding and indispensable mavericks of 20th century literature, a writer set beside Juna Barnes and Jane Bowles with a subversive genius that anticipates the fantastic flights of Angela Carter and Jeanette Winterson. It's a good summary of the book. It's a good list of names, isn't it? Yeah, it's an interesting lineage she gets placed into there. I don't, I don't think the other backs of the books have been like, this book is like this author and this author with a, something of this author and this author. Here's another more famous author you might know. Please buy this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the interesting thing is because of you, Cassia, I knew Sylvia Townsend Warner much more than any of the other people. Than the others. Because you're such a Warner head. A Warner head. Love that. Yeah, we were debating yesterday what fans of Sylvia Townsend Warner would be called. Uh, Warner heads, Sylvans, Townies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> team, team Townsend. <laughs> team Townsend. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, as you say, she, she's now maybe more well known than some of those people. And I was thinking some some of your listeners might have had their hackles raised at me putting her in the same term as Middlebrow when I was talking about my studies. But it's interesting how she has been rescued over over time because when she was published, as you, as you all know, she was she was considered quite Middlebrow. She was the first. This book was the first choice for the Book of the Month Club in America, and it was you know she wasn't thought of as being particularly high literary and i think that's probably changed now those names that she's along like juna barnes and angela carter they're like the sort of high quality literature people aren't they it's not not putting her alongside what what i think she's much more like particularly in the first two-thirds of this book which is all the domestic novelists of the 1920s right right that was surprising to me because this was the first time i read the book and i had no expectations of that and i, I kind of loved the way townsend warner structured this book yeah 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 So just to get a little background on this book, Sylvia Townsend Warner had published a volume of poems the year prior to this coming out. Apparently, the story goes, they reached out to her and said, hey, do you have any fiction lying around? She was like, yeah, actually, I have this manuscript. (laughs) Sent it with a a kind of self-deprecating note about how she wouldn't be surprised if they rejected it. They published it, and it became a success. She ended up writing six more novels. Three of those are in addition to this one, are in the NYRB Classic series. She was also a prolific short story writer, published a lot in The New Yorker, wrote a biography. I think her personal life is much discussed because uh, she lived with a woman, shock horror, (laughs) and she considered herself a communist. But I think it's just, there's this thing about Sylvia Townsend Warner when people read her and they like her, they tend to go all in. Mm -hmm. They get into the letters and the diaries and they do become the... Team Townsend. <laughs> <laughs> Do you love everything she wrote? I haven't read everything, but I have it kind of around and I dip into it. She's one of those writers that like, I think once you get into her, you just, you always read her your whole life. You just nice. go back to the stories. You go back to the novels. At least that's my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I found that I love her short stories and I love Lolly Willows mm-hmm. and I have not enjoyed many many of the other novels i've actually, actually actively hate some of them so, but, um, oh really which do you hate oh, oh the corner that held them i know people love that novel <gasps> i love that one i'm really excited <laughs> should i leave, that one. leave now 
I mean, I don't like historical fiction, which is uh, probably mm. you know, which she liked a lot. There. Yeah, because it's, it's medieval, isn't it? Sure. So, <laughs> yeah, I just I like her when she's talking about uh, the current day, which you know, Lolly Willows is more or less set in the time it was written, isn't it? And and a lot of her short stories are, and I, I prefer her when she's looking around her rather than looking into the past. Mm-hmm. I will say, Cassie made a note that there, even though her books cover sort of a diverse subject matter from historical fiction to the fantasy. They all have a certain warderness. They have a certain uh, style mm-hmm. and um, approach to all the books that makes it uniquely her own. And I think that's a really special thing for a writer to do. Yeah, you can definitely look at a sentence and think only Warner would write that. And it's hard to, <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to say exactly what that means or what that looks like. But but yeah, you're right. It's absolutely it, yeah. ineffable. So the cover art on the NYRB edition, uh, which I think both of you have, mm-hmm. is Witch's Head by august natterer and once again pretty spot on choice yeah i love the picks that they have for the artwork on their on their books yeah it's uh it's weird it's good <laughs> i think you'd start it's reading weird. the novel and think like what is this cover doing and then you'd realize <laughs> eventually okay i see i didn't realize <laughs> that it was a head at um, all i just thought it was some kind of landscape and then i saw the eye and i was like whoa <laughs> realize this thing you've been looking at is something that not what you expected which that's what the book does as well yeah, if you yeah, go absolutely. in on without knowing so simon since you've read this book i assume several times before what was your reaction to it this time? This time, for the first time, I did the audiobook, which uh, Ooh. Was, Ooh. was good fun. Yeah. Who narrated it? Enough of it. It'd be great if any of the answers to that, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> someone I hadn't heard of, okay. but they were good. It's just, yeah, the one that was on Audible. So, yeah. Uh, in fact, there were two on Audible. You can take a choice. I picked the one that had more reviews. That's my scientific <laughs> <sounds like laughs> approach. But. Yeah, it's been a few years since I read it. I read it quite a few times during my DFO, which I finished nearly 10 years ago now. So uh, I don't think I read it since then. And I think the main thing I realized was that there were bits of it I remembered really well, mostly the bits that I wrote a lot about and reread those bits. There were lots of stretches of it that I remembered less well. And I had, um, I think I'd forgotten just how good the writing is throughout I, 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 was, mm. I thought of it as having these spectacular moments but actually just every sentence is <laughs> beautiful and powerful and odd particularly odd and th- just that that lovely sympathy she has for laura throughout mm-hmm. whilst was also sort of hanging around to dry occasionally i always think it's interesting that we uh that it's called lolly willows in when that's yes. one of our first when, notes <laughs> when, yeah 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 <laughs> yeah what do you make of that there's like five other potential titles like why isn't yeah. it aunt <laughs> lolly or laura willows so i have a bit of a theory on that because okay. lolly is a term of servitude in the book it's um you know referred to as aunt lolly as the way like everyone talks to her because of like her role that she needs to be part of the family and so she's no longer aunt lolly but at the end of the book somewhat spoilers she still is in a method of servitude Mm, she is laura willows in servitude lolly willows that was kind of my best interpretation of what was going on there with that's pretty good yeah let's go yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i love i know we'll talk about it later but i love that you've talked you've mentioned her being in servitude because so often particularly when I was looking at critical writing about this, they were like, this uncomplex feminist manifesto, this woman has freedoms. Like, she absolutely doesn't have <laughs> But, you know, we'll, right. come, we'll, we'll come yeah. on to that later. Or we can talk, I don't know, do you want to talk about, we'll talk about some things that are slightly less spoilery first, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, so I had read this book once before for the first time, maybe six or seven years ago. And I went into it knowing about it as the book where the main character becomes a witch. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I was just like, well, where's the witch part? Like I was kind of (laughs) breezing past all of this family drama and history thinking, well, when do we get spells? When do we get cats? (laughs) It comes. This time... This time reading it, I think that I approached it in a much more mature way. Maybe I've matured as a reader, hopefully. But I just, I loved her depiction of the domestic scene and the and the family. And I think it's, she writes really beautifully about grief and about what it was mm-hmm. like for Laura to lose her father. And the family, although she is oppressed by them in many ways, they're not villainous. Mm-hmm. They're not mm-hmm. uh, unnecessarily evil in any way. There, there is this cool handoff. It's not just about the witch. It's very much about what comes before that. The two are equally uh, important in the structure of the book. I think that's a great point. It's also not just about women being oppressed by men because, you know, her father is right. A, she, she's such a kind character. Her family are sort of being kind to her and whilst also tr- trammeling her freedoms, but, but <laughs> in a way that is intended to to do good to her sort of <laughs> i do think it's interesting they talk about her moving in and basically like a piece of furniture they're like we can we can fit her in there if we move some things around <laughs> we'll put but, her uh, in the small room exactly. and th- there's that part where she decides to leave and henry has that like long conversation of her like but it's so nice here you have a you have a home like you have yeah. us and it's like yeah it's it's nice but not what this person needs at this moment at all yeah even if it has the veneer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and certainly, if you're comparing where she moves to, the cottage she moves to, where she lives before is technically nicer, technically yes. warmer, probably. And I guess closer to being hers in as much as it belongs to her family, where she's renting when she moves to Great Mop. But, um, great Mop. But yeah, as you say, it's, it's not Great Mop. Great, what a great name. name. <laughs> uh, and, and like the sort of English name that you would definitely, you know, this place, I'm sure there is a Great Mop in the country somewhere. <laughs> Dylan this was your first time reading it Mm -hmm. so what did you think I I feel like I had a very similar reaction to you where I was reading this book and I was like I thought I was about a witch but (laughs) I think I really enjoy domestic tales a lot probably more than you do even but so I was really enjoying myself for most of the book but what I, I think the last half definitely stands out as something so unique in its approach to the fantastical and like i love the introduction of vinegar where she's kind of like <laughs> laughingly is like oh should i feed it milk or does this need blood because it's an emissary of the devil <laughs> <laughs> like that was probably my favorite sort of stuff in the book i loved it a lot and I like how there's definitely a reading of that scene where she's just mad, but, but it also could be true. You sure. know, like, who knows? And, I mean, it, as, as the novel goes on, obviously it becomes clearer what, what's going on, but there's, a, there's always a fine line between the fantastic and insanity in any book that tries to right. do that. <laughs> and it really depends on your perspective a lot of the time. Yeah, I think this book really presents that perspective well, but there is an interesting quote that Cassia found where it was like... Uh, Someone asked Sylvia Townsend Warner if, like, if this was a representation of witchery or if she was an actual witch. And not... If it was a, if it was symbolism mm, mm, or whether it was, yeah, yeah. was real. And yeah, she said, I meant literally she became a witch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I want to be so clear about that. <laughs> she, <laughs> she sold her soul. It's all gold. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, there's a line in the novel, too, if I can just find it, where when, when it happens, it, she says, she, Laura Willows, in England, in the year 1922, yes. entered into a compact with the devil. And it's got all those commas and clauses, and it really does feel like a legal document. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. This is on paper. This is, this is what's happened. Please understand <laughs> there is no ambiguity here. And it's <laughs> such a shock when you get to that point. You can only imagine, like, the little like housewives reading it for book club in 1926 we're like what <laughs> and apparently apparently a lot of those book of the months were returned angrily so it wasn't a big success let's yeah. go <laughs> yeah i'm yeah i could imagine them being just like burned in mass like yeah. outside in the churchyard or something that's brilliant <laughs> so zooming out a little bit to the historical context. Uh, Simon, I know you did some research on the number of unmarried women in the UK around the time this book was published. What did you uncover? Yeah. <laughs> so um, it was this big figure that people talked about, the two million surplus women. It was, a, mm-hmm. um, you know, particularly the tabloid press, I guess, shouted this number a lot. In actuality, and I think this stat was in v- Virginia Nicholson's book, Singled Out, there are w- about 1.75 million unmarried women and even before the first world war which is what was blamed for all, all this being fewer men there were still about one and a half million more women than men so it, or maybe mm. 1.25 or something so it wasn't this huge huge shift but yeah the idea that all these young marriageable men had gone off to war and, and been killed meant that there were all these women of marriageable age who were not going to get married anymore and that led to huge amounts of literature and books <laughs> uh non-fiction books which I had a great time reading, some of which are like, just have a cocktail, you'll be fine. And, and others are like, well, you might as well kill yourself now. So, uh, uh, a, a real a real range. There's one, and they always had great titles. There's one called um, The Bachelor Woman and Her Problems. Oh, my gosh. Read, And <laughs> Motherhood and Its Enemies was another one. So you can, you can sort of see the tone of the like guide before you get in. And they're all meant to have this great advice for women, but some of them, I imagine you'd drown yourself if you actually got to the end of the book and wanted to apply it oh, no but yeah that's what led to the people like laura uh willis sure. these unmarried sisters slash aunts uh slash daughters who finding themselves dependent on on one male relative or another like she is sort of just there as a well there was this company called universal aunts at the time which was basically like a home help slash whatever else you needed they might bring groceries they might do childcare, but they're called universal aunts because aunts are just meant to do that that's their role wow. is to help people and not have lives of their own so, yeah yeah in light of that you can see the appeal of becoming a witch <laughs> <laughs> so we touched on this already just how well written the book is and warner's writing style dylan you described it as a bunny rabbit yeah i but you didn't explain i couldn't figure out my best way to describe how this writing style was besides a bunny rabbit and what i meant by that is sylvia townser warner (laughs) (laughs) loves to seems to like jump into things like hop around to different things and just eat up all the little grass in that could be consumed in that area and i think i kind of like found that out in the beginning of the book where she's like I'm going to tell you everything about every relative in this entire family and why this family set up this way and why Laura is this way. And like, there was this just complete mammalian excitement that like came with like a bunny that just, I I couldn't get out of my head when I was reading this book. It just, it was really wonderful. And I just, I really enjoyed it. I, I kept on, we, we try to like highlight points of the book that we want to read. And it just kept on being like, I want to talk about this paragraph. And then I was like, oh. 
the next paragraph I'd want to I'd want to read as well. <laughs> Dylan will now read the entire audio book <laughs> of <Lally West. laughs> Don't sue us for copyright. No. <laughs> Did you find a passage particularly like that exemplifies the, the bunny rabbit? <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear a passage. <laughs> oh man! Well, I, like I said, I ca- it came to me early in the book. Let's see if I could find one. I what I love the most about her. I think is the use of detail. It just feels like every exactly. single word on the page is the perfect word. Like the names of the characters, the names of the towns, the furniture, the silverware. Can I, can I actually uh, throw in? I found, I found a good one about this. Let's go. Beside the china cupboard and beneath the ratafi stood Emma's harp, a green harp ornamented with gilt scrolls and acanthus leaves in the David Manor. When Laura was little, she would sometimes steal into the empty drawing room and pluck the strings which remained unbroken. They answered with a melancholy and distracted voice, and Laura would be pleasantly frightened herself with the thoughts of Emma's ghost coming back to make music with cold fingers, stealing into the empty drawing room as noiselessly as she had done. But Emma's was a gentle ghost. Emma died of decline, and when she lay dead, with a bunch of snowdrops under her folded palms, a lock of her hair was cut off to be embroidered, a picture of the willow tree exalting its branches above a padded white satin tomb. That, said Laura's mother, is an heirloom to your great Aunt Emma who died. And Laura was so sorry for the poor young lady who alone, it seemed to her, all of her relations, had the misfortune to die. Oh, isn't that brilliant? I love that. Isn't, isn't <laughs> yeah. it great? It's just like... The, I love the, the harp so much. The harps, yeah. like describing her death, describing like the relation to all the family members. It was like, it's just, it feels like a bunny rabbit to me. I can't describe it any better. <laughs> And also that she's, it's not saying, obviously, she's not a ghost. It's saying she was a gentle ghost. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like yeah, the, the narrative is like, yeah, she's a ghost. but she's... And that's also <laughs> an example of the way, even when you're in this relatively straight domestic novel for the first half, there are these little hints of the supernatural, like mm-hmm. ghostliness. And then at one of many miserable dinners with men that her family's trying to marry her off with, she uh, scares one off by talking about werewolves. And how he might be a werewolf mm-hmm. without knowing about it. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like there's like an exponential growth of the fan- mm. fantastical as this book goes on. And it, as soon as we get to Great Mop is when it really starts to grow. But it's it's always there. It's always sort of in the background. It just mm-hmm. comes to the foreground by the end. Yeah. And this, that's what's great about rereading it is that you sort yep. of see it mm-hmm. more, don't you? The, the uh, yeah, sort of laced through. So moving on to this idea of the ant and why it sucks so bad to be an aunt versus being a spinster <laughs> daughter or potentially an unhappy housewife. Laura is very happy in the home, much like Sylvia Townsend Warner herself, who had a good relationship with her father. She's very happy and feels free to do as she please living in her father's home. And then when she goes to London, she gets absorbed into this family that's like her family, but they feel sort of foreign to her. You feel this closing off mm-hmm. during that portion. What do you guys make of that? Yeah, I guess it's when she when she's a daughter, there is all this possibility, and when she's an mm. aunt, it's like the end of possibility. It's like the, her, she she's got this role, and it's never going to change. She talks about is it that how she's talking about, or maybe it's a different one where she talks about some. Eventually, she will get to to know the front door, and it'll be really obvious that it's that. Mm-hmm. Uh, house and not any of the other ones in the street and that sort of thing and it is this sense that familiarity is a good thing and then it becomes too familiar it becomes mm-hmm. a really bad thing and it's and you know she's in this completely predictable 
world where she's not expected to have any sort of personality. She's not expected to have any needs. Mm-hmm. She's just expected to to serve the cogs of the of the rest of the family and be grateful to do so. Yeah, and there's this great aspect, like you mentioned, where there's all these men that are like quote unquote subjugating her, but like the the women also sort of mindlessly fall into this as well with like Carolyn and Sybil. Just like there's like an expectation that like oh she'll be there and do her womanly duties like we do, but unlike them, she doesn't have the family or the drive to fall into those roles and she wants to witch to be quite frank <laughs> she wants to witch <laughs> i think that that great moment when she's in the flower shop yes. it's this very mm-hmm. uh yeah this sort of like eve-esque thing of reaching into the branches and and that's when the line between reality and dream and, fa- and fantasy all just merges it's like she she feels like she's in a in a wood and she you can only imagine what the poor guy trying to sell her some flowers <laughs> is thinking as she's sort of right now <laughs> waving her arms around yeah and i like that she's initially drawn to the countryside and that's that's her main thing at first she just she just wants the freedom and the outdoor space and the nature and at the same time as we'll talk about that she uh she wants to understand that through maps and guidebooks mm-hmm. she's, she's not she's got this really interesting mix of wanting freedom but also wanting some sort of historicity or i don't know or, or structure to that freedom and she doesn't quite know what she wants at first and she doesn't i'm not quite sure she ever works out exactly what she wants but, but that's um, the pro the process <laughs> but, of it is she she moves her father dies she's 28 at the beginning of the book and then 20 years go by are just absorbed into the life of the aunt mm-hmm. and then you get to that amazing scene when she's running errands and she has this realization of like oh my god like i and she and then later looks around the table at her family and is like have i really sat at this godforsaken table for two decades and yeah, that's my next reading. She's just like, I need to shake out of it. Do, do you want to read from it now? Yeah. During dinner, Laura looked at her relations. She felt as though she had awoken, unchanged from 20 years of slumber, to find them almost unrecognizable. She surveyed them, one after the other. Even Henry and Caroline, whom she saw every day, were half-hidden under their accumulations. Accumulations of prosperity, authority, daily experience. They were captured with experience. No new event could set jarring feet on them, but they would absorb and muffle the impact. If the boiler burst, if a policeman climbed in at the window waving a sword, Henry and Caroline would bring the situation to a heel by their massive experience of normal boilers and normal policemen. <laughs> it's such a it's such a funny, clever book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always so so dry, but also it's not uh, at the expense of the characters. Mm-hmm. Like you still still feel that she's on Laura's side, even while she's uh, has those wonderful sentences where it is like this authorial step back and slightly mocking everyone. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. She maintains her yeah. neutrality, but is still yeah. generous towards Laura's plight. <laughs> mm. You were you were mentioning maps and how even though she longs for just yeah wide open wood and space, she needs a, some kind of guide to take her from the world of London to the freedom that she's longing for. Even once she moves to Great Mop, she is there for an important period of time, nine-month interval, before she moves into witchdom. So there is, like, this transitional thing that has to happen. And that nine months, mm-hmm. I think, is not a coincidence that it's, you know, the no, <laughs> gestation period. <laughs> yeah, instead of becoming a mother, she becomes a witch. That's her maternal fate. <laughs> and even when she's telling the family about great mop and she's not been there yet she says it does seem almost too good to be true but it is i've read it in a guidebook and seen it on a map and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but 
for, and for her, there doesn't seem to be any difference at that point between seeing it in a map and seeing it in reality. Which obviously she uh, eventually realizes. <laughs> well, shall, I, shall I read the bit I was going to read about? Uh, yes, please do. Yeah, this is a perfect time. I love also just the first sentence of the, of this paragraph. About this time, she did an odd thing. She's again that weird, not thorough voice. In her wandering, she had found a disused well. It was sunk at the side of a green lane, and grass and bushes had grown up around its low rim, almost to conceal it. The wooden frame was broken and mouldered. Ropes and pulleys had long ago been taken away, and the water was sunk far down only distinguishable as an uncertain reflection of the sky. Here, one evening, she brought her guidebook and her map. Pushing aside the bushes, she sat down upon the low rim of the well. It was a still, mild evening towards the end of February. The birds were singing, and there was a smell of growth in the air. The light lingered in the fields, as though it were glad to linger. Looking into the well, she watched the reflected sky grow dimmer, and when she raised her eyes, the gathering darkness of the landscape surprised her. The time had come. She took the guidebook and the map and threw them in. It's great. <laughs> I, I, can, I guess I can see the bunny rabbit thing happening there. It's good. <laughs> but uh, what, I, what I really like about that image is that she's not throwing them in a river or some sort of natural mm. body of water. She's throwing them in a man-made well. So it's this really confused... And not, nothing is ever really simple in Lollywood. It's, 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 the well mm. was put there by man, but it's also a disused well. So is it like an intervention in nature or is it nature taking back mm. over something that man put there? As a yeah, as a place to throw the guidebook, it it is like a complex image that isn't really nature versus versus man, but like everything going on at the same right. time. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's such an interesting philosophical point that she weaves in through the book that I'd completely missed the first time I read it. What bearing <laughs> do you think that idea, the idea that the map is not the territory, and Warner playing around with that idea in light of her also playing around with gender roles and expectations. Why bring those two things together? Very nice. Yeah, great question. <laughs> but what's, what's the answer? Um, yeah, I mean, I think partly it's to show that, that nothing is straightforward in this novel. That uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it's the map and the guidebook who brought her there, so they're not they're not enemies. It's also it's men who've enabled her to have any money at all to get there i guess it's men who've looked after her sure, and to stay there the yeah mm-hmm. uh, and obviously we'll get on to the devil but um <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah and it and i think it's often read in quite simplistic terms i don't know if it's only read some things about it being this beyond nature but even when she she talks about this field that she she really likes when she, and it's described as being like a room so there's always this overlay of of houses over mm-hmm. on top of nature so yeah i and if maybe yeah it does apply also to to gender or anything else in the novel that nothing is nothing's binary in the novel nothing is quite fully good or fully evil no and i don't think anything is one specific symbol Mm -hmm. more than one other it seems to very sort of mesh well into each other everything relates to everything else yeah i mean when water recurs through the novel all over the place and i'm now trying to think of examples Mm -hmm. but one, one of them is in that one of the houses she's in, she talks about hearing sounds of water in the far distance, which, which tells her that there are servants around. And that's always something that's an interesting image that there are just people lurking <laughs> in the house somewhere. But there's always water trying to get in or get out <laughs> around the novel. There's lots of that sort of thing. Sure. It'd be lovely if there was a lovely like allegory throughout it. But I, as you say, I think nothing is ever quite static or, or dependable in that way. Mm-hmm. It's unkempt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well... Space definitely means for her independence. She wants her own space. 
And that becomes especially significant when one of her nephews comes to Great Mop and she's like, I got to get rid of him. Like, I came (laughs) all this way. I did all this stuff. I drowned the map. And now my my aunt hood is trying to pull me back Mm -hmm. in. And I don't, I can't handle it. So because of that, the book is often compared to Virginia Woolf's essay, A Room of One's Own, which comes out three years after this book. What are the, the fact that these two pieces of writing, women's writing, occur in this time period, what, what are they speaking to? Maybe just the, like, like, like Simon, you brought up in your uh, research how there were these women at the time that weren't getting married as often, given the lack of men and the changing of society. And maybe it's just a, just a reaction to what is a life to do on its own? What, are, what do we need to support that and have that grow if maybe we're not just meant to be married? as we'd all kind of agreed to in the past. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely looking at alternative possibilities. I mean, as, as lots of critics said, it's also a very privileged <laughs> thing to say, you know, mm-hmm. I, to say any anyone should have a room of their own. Obviously, there's huge numbers of people who, um, in a class where they would not have been able to afford a room of their own, even if, in any circumstances. And uh, yeah, the 500, is it 500 pounds a year that Virginia Woolf says people should have, which I think is like... I know fifty thousand or something now. So some 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 could see. It's probably not that, but it's it's a, but it's a lot more than most people Ooh. would would have. So her her reading is uh, interesting, and I think Laura is much humbler in what she wants. Like she doesn't have a, a room of her own in the sense of owning it, but she does have space of her own. Mm. She she has a lot less money than that. But yeah, I think there there is this growing sense of independent space being being possible. I guess. People were living in mm-hmm. in smaller houses and more of them, smaller families down, you know, one person down to one person families, I guess. But in the early twentieth century, it wasn't the sort of big sprawling Victorian family with all the servants living in the same house. So even even if people had servants, they were more likely then to be day servants or you know coming in in the day and living somewhere else. So this this whole sense of mm-hmm. space doesn't have to all be on top of each other is in- increasingly being talked about. And yeah, I think spatial autonomy is is the freedom that Laura decides is most important. That's the one she's going to go for, and that's the one she sort of gets. But I think it refers also refers to in this book that like we can never be totally free. Mm. In order to gain the freedom that she wants, she still has to give herself in servitude to a force beyond herself, i.e. The, that one elephant in the room, which is the devil. <laughs> <laughs> and what I think is really interesting about him in the novel, or one of the really interesting things is, you know, he is a man, he comes yeah, in the form yeah. of a man and yeah. uh, and the book i don't know if it's mentioned in this intro but the book that sylvia townsend warner said she used for a lot of her research was the witch cult of western europe by margaret something hmm. <laughs> <laughs> someone could google it um which talks about the fact that there were female devil uh, female satans in these cults mm. so if she'd wanted to the devil could have been a woman in this and that would have had historical reference in in that same book so she she chose to make him a man (laughs) and it's those (laughs) i mean the final word of the novel is ownership Mm. (laughs) like she's she's, she is she is owned which is again why it really frustrates me if when this novel is read as as being a feminist pursuit of complete freedom because yeah she is it's about i guess a feminist pursuit of choice more than anything else she's chosen which freedom that she she wants and as you say uh dylan like we nobody can have complete freedom but the privileged position maybe or the, the position that people want to get to is to choose which freedoms 
they do have. Prioritize, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a great line that I think is maybe Cassie's favorite line in the book where, is it Mr. Jones that the devil refers to? Oh, where he says, they're talking about uh, some member of the village who's not a part of the Witcher Warlock Brigade. And he says he will have his reward in another life. It's near to Laura's feminist speech in quotations at the end. And then the devil's just like Uh kind of suggests that maybe there is a heaven, maybe there's a salvation beyond earth. And it it becomes Mm -hmm. kind of, oh, 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 okay. This is not a joke. Like this is not all just for laughs (laughs) at all. And I think that's... I mean, I yeah, I am a Christian, but a lot of the people reading this sure. aren't, and a lot of people reading this just see Satan as being like, you know, a quite powerful man in the novel. Whereas, you know, if you're reading it from a Christian perspective, which a lot of her readers would have done in the mm-hmm. 1920s, and Warner anticipated that Satan's not a joke. Satan's, you know, yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty powerful, pretty evil guy. <laughs> so, yeah, it's. I, I think we. I think maybe readers now have maybe softened a bit the impact that, that Warner is trying to make if, if people don't take if people don't take Satan as seriously now as as they did then maybe. So, yeah, I mm-hmm. think it, it's it should be shocking, and I think if we've made made it less shocking now, then we're losing something in the novel. I think it is shocking, but the effectiveness of it is like he doesn't come to her as like this demon with a tail and horns. Mm-hmm. He just is this guy that's almost like. Is he like gardening or something? He's like well, I think that's a little a... yeah. She mistakes well, yeah. She he's disguised as a gardener, and I think that's a little reference to Jesus being mistaken for a gardener by Mary after he's resurrected. So I think oh, it's it, interesting, yeah, it's like that that chat's going on. But yeah, I, this guy isn't there at the party that uh, yes. she thinks is the devil, and who is there with the like <laughs> horns and stuff? And what was it he said? He he, he sold his soul to make sure he's the most important person at a party once a week. Or something. Yeah, he was he was a uh, a writer, and he he wanted to feel mm, really important. Mm. And I think the narrator, maybe Laura, remarks something like, "Well, couldn't they have just he just wished to be a great writer, but no, he just wanted to be popular at a party. That was more important. <laughs> that was more to the point for him." <laughs> and I don't know if you're going to. Were you planning on reading the that that feminist speech you mentioned? Oh, uh, we can. Yeah. Sure. No, we can read it. It is a great. Shall I? Yeah, I please. Shall I read it? Um, Go for before it. I do, I think it's just interesting because it's often taken completely at face value, mm-hmm. and I wonder if Warner in, Warner's not put this in the in the narrative. She's put it in dialogue, and I think there's a reason for that. So I, I do yes. wonder if uh, how how seriously we're meant to take it as a conclusion. Mm-hmm. But anyway. When I think of witches, I see, seem to see all over England, all over Europe, women living and growing old, as common as blackberries and as unregarded. I see them, wives and sisters of respectable men, chapel members and blacksmiths and small farmers and Puritans, in places like Bedfordshire, the sort of country one sees from the train. You know, well, there they were, there they are, child-rearing, housekeeping, hanging washed dishcloths on currant bushes, and for diversion, each other's silly conversation, and listening to men talking together in the way that men talk and women listen quite different to the way women talk and men listen, if they listen at all, and all the time being thrust further down into dullness when the one thing all women hate is to be thought dull, and on Sunday they put on plain stuff gowns and starched white coverings on their heads and necks, the Puritan ones did, and walked across the fields to chapel and listened to the sermon. And it goes on and on, and I mean there's a lot of really, you know, obviously we all know a lot of that is true from the 20s, but I do think it's interesting that it is... Like a lot of what Laura says in this novel is slightly warped and slightly not true, and slightly <laughs> like her perspective on things that the narrative is questioning. And I do, I think that I don't quite, quite pinpoint exactly what I 
why I think this bit is, but I think maybe what she's saying is true and what her, solu- her solution isn't great. I don't know. But, her solution's yeah. definitely not great. There's a yeah. lot of downsides to making a yeah. deal with the devil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it is interesting how many just people, even scholars quote that as like, this is Warner's proclamation. It's like, well, it's Laura's proclamation and that's not the same thing. Yeah, and... And a lot of readers, they like. I feel like it's a very popular Goodreads quote. Like, yes, this is why we yeah, become yeah. a witch to not have an existence doled out by others. But yeah. nice, yeah. She maybe does. But I want to ask the question because this book is often framed as a satire. She's mm-hmm. satiring much more than one thing than the role of women, right? So, what is she satirizing? I saw this question in your notes, and it's like, well, what is she satirizing? Is she? Sat- I think she. She's definitely subverting mm. the domestic novel, but I don't know if she's satirizing it because I think that satirizing seems to me to have a sort of disdain or like you're using the cloak of one thing to undermine it. Whereas I think she's, she, I think she has a respect for the dis- domestic novel and I think she's doing the best domestic novel she knows she can do and it's brilliant. And then she's making it something different. So I, I, in my mind, she's not satirizing it so much as just making it mm. weirder. Sure. Yeah, I think yeah. that's that's fair. <laughs> that's I think we perceive satire, we associate satire with something really cold-hearted and negative. And this book mm-hmm. is not that. I think no. the idea of she makes a deal with the devil in order to escape her family is like a funny satirical riff. <laughs> but like it doesn't have the feeling of satire in that it's an- it doesn't feel anti, it doesn't feel ornery or dismissive, like you said, mm-hmm. of... The type of because the first half of the book is a perfect example of that type of novel. It's as good as any other ex, uh, any other one in the class. And if she'd ended there, I think no one would have thought it was a, no one would call it a satire of that sort of novel. They just think it was sure. a, a great right. Novel. They, they'd say it was yeah. a social commentary or ironic or witty yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think this kind of goes back to maybe that final speech that Laura gives. Because what she says isn't necessarily untrue about, like, the subjugation of women in society, mm-hmm. like, trying to escape mm-hmm. for it. But it, it's got this sort of thing of, like, what can one do to approach that? And it's not agreeing or disagreeing with her choice. It's just that is very much Laura trying to explain why she's doing this thing rather than Sylvia Townsend Warner, like, coming out onto the stage with, like, a gavel <laughs> and making her great feminist <laughs> speech and i think that there's more agency in letting her describe why she's choosing this Mm. horrible thing to live the way she wants to live than just trying to make it about a soapbox and so you could argue that even she's satirizing the idea of freedom of women Mm. in this because of the lengths that laura is going to to achieve it but whatever it is it's very caring in a way of whatever Laura's choice was. That's what she chose. Go yeah. for it. <laughs> yeah. Even if she chose yeah. her own damnation, well, she chose it. And so cheers for her. Three <laughs> cheers for Laura. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's interesting that the, um, someone published the initial ending of the novel somewhere and I'm not going to remember it exactly, but I think it ends on the word death or it ends yes. with a, it ends in a way that seems like, like Laura Wallace has just mm-hmm. died. And 
her, yeah, her publisher, initial publisher, was asked her to make it a little letter, morbid. <laughs> so, yeah, so it extended a bit. Maybe you've read read that. I, ha- I haven't well. read it, but um, I I, I think the current mm. version is still somewhat suggestive of death or of an ending. Mm, mm. Doesn't she kill a fly on her hand and the devil shouts yeah. death? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's not subtle. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's really funny, and I guess yeah, Beelzebub means uh, Lord of the Flies, doesn't Ooh, it? So there's okay. That, um, oh, there we it? go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lair in there. He's also somewhere. Lord of the Wasps. <laughs> yes. Oh, isn't he? Poor yeah. Titus. <laughs> that was one of my favorite parts of the book. <laughs> that part is really funny. the The description of just his like hands being attacked, like his arm. You can totally picture <laughs> <Yeah>. him. <laughs> so filmic, isn't uh-huh, it? Uh huh. It is. Yeah. <laughs> And that's something Cassie and I were talking about as we were reading this book together, is how is there not a film adaptation of this book at this point? That's weird, isn't it? You'd think there would be. And especially with the popularity it's... of, like, witchy feminism right now and, oh my you know, gosh, women yeah. buying candles and Ouija boards and all that. It's perfect. <laughs> Hollywood, but get gonna, on this. You're see it being like a Netflix series where they just make they go way over the top of the horror and it's like jump scales all over the place. Yeah, and, maybe yeah. we should be happy there isn't one because they would do it badly. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if they did it, they would cut the first two thirds down to yeah. like a couple scenes and then just like have a montage. Like... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although we need we need vinegar rendered on screen. Vinegar, vinegar so, needs his fifteen minutes. Peak. Yeah. <laughs> I love that bit where she th- just thinks vinegar is really malicious as well. Where she's like, "He's just a kitten. He's not got used to like <laughs> give it, doling out n- n- demonry yet." <laughs> yeah, and this is a kind of an interesting point. I'm going to relate it back to Laura as well. But on your podcast, Simon, the last episode you did was called "Do We Care About What Characters Look Like." Mm. And there was this thing where Cassie and I were trying to figure out what does vinegar look like. We couldn't remember if there was a specific description. If it, it had a color. Oh, I can't remember either. But as I, yeah, as I said in yeah. that episode, like I never noticed special descriptions, so there might be one. And so like Cassia, Cassia thought of it as more of a white cat, and I thought of it more as a tabby. But this, I think, also goes to Laura. Is like, what exactly does Laura look like? Because I don't think she gives a ton of descriptions about Laura herself. A lot of the description goes to Laura's internal thoughts and external world around her. Controlling her, freeing her, whatever. But I don't think there's a lot about what Laura herself looks like. Yeah, I think the only thing I can remember is it mentions at one point her pointy chin, mm-hmm. which is le- leaning into that witchy thing. And I actually think it's a bit of a, a, a It's a little corny. Warner's part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess it's there, it's there before you know she's a witch. So I guess it's one of those clues. But um, and her, yeah. it, it, she she, re, she returns to that point about her nose and her chin as seeming to get more pronounced. Yeah, the more you know, she mm, moves into mm. the country. She kind of her features become witchy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I mean, Sylvia, you've yeah, <laughs> sure, <okay>. you do. <laughs> you did your very bit. early twentieth century, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is. I mean, is it anti-Semitic as well? There's a bit of that in there. I don't know. But <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, that brings us to the question of what do the fantasy elements in this book achieve that could not be achieved by natural methods? This is a Simon question for sure. Alley <laughs> to Simon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I have thought about this a lot. <laughs> How to condense this? Well, yeah. I mean, my, my main sort of thesis in my 
thesis was that they enable you to talk about things that you might in a way that is subtler, I guess, than just talking about them. Sure. But also there's always a turning point in a novel that's got something fantastic in it. And this one, it comes quite late. In other words, yeah. it might come in the, in the first sentence. Mm. Mm. But wherever it, it is, it jolts the reader into seeing something in a new light. And it, yeah, as you, as we all did, we all read this book knowing she would become a witch. So it's not like we were, sh- we were shocked halfway through. But sure. <laughs> if you're thinking about some sort of implied reader who hasn't read those blurbs, then, <laughs> then it is a, a shocking moment that takes you out of naturalistic yes i understand what this woman's going through or don't or you know but i'm thinking about it and i think just any sort of jolt like that makes you think about things more deeply i suppose and it gives a range of in this situation it gives a range of possible solutions or answers or you know worsenings to her state that (laughs) wouldn't be there a naturalistic novel in something like lady into fox for example by Mm -hmm. so david garnett was actually a really good friend of um silver tanton warner's and was nicknamed Bunny just to bring, to bring the bunny in again. But, um, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there, like, obviously women don't turn into foxes. And so it gives you this whole uh, reframing of like what what could this contemporary issue do if our minds go beyond what what actually could happen. And that enables you to think more about what actually could happen, if that makes sense. I think it takes you to the, the actual limits of possibility mm. and beyond. And that means you're considering everything. Another one that I wrote a lot about is called The Love Child by Edith Olivier, which, again, is about unmarried women. There, it's more about childlessness for Mm. unmarried women. And it's it's a brilliant novel where this woman called Agatha, this washed-up spinster at 35 or something, (laughs) but she she accidentally conjures her imaginary childhood friend into life when she starts sort of imaginary playing with her again. Mm. And that, you know, is a a great way of looking at the effects of not being able to have children on on these two million, inverted commas, surplus women. So, yeah, I think that's just a long way of saying that I think it lets you talk about things without just saying, and it's really sad that this woman can't get married even though she wants to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously there were people then who didn't want to get married. And, like, you know, we don't we don't see that Laura's being a single woman means that she wants to get married. She she, mm-hmm. <laughs> she So, yeah, it's different things in different novels. She seems to actively avoid it. Yeah, like she, yeah, she definitely doesn't want to. <laughs> she never seriously considers it. The book isn't, they're just like, yeah, we have these required meetings, but it, we're not actually going to go down that route. It's just not happening. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that if if these novels had been set in the in a completely different world, if they were like fantasy otherworldly, you wouldn't have any of that sort of impact. I think mm. it's that mixture of flights of fantasy, but also being tethered to reality that really makes these novels powerful mm-hmm. and it was lady and fox that sort of started off a trend for them mm. in fact there was a review of this one of lolly willows that was just called lady into witch at the mm. time so it had this like long arm of people knew about it gave them the chance to do all these other things and it sort of disappeared in the second world war so it is yeah it is interesting that i guess people were playing with what the novel could be more around that time as well i don't know but it's this this vogue that lasted for about 20 years and then disappeared. Mm-hmm. Should we bring it back? Oh, I mean, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a case, I mean, there are some, I've read, so this book called Virginia Woolf in Manhattan by Maggie Gee about Virginia Woolf being like just reappearing in Manhattan today. Uh, <laughs> I, read, I read a good book called The Girl with Glass Feet by Ellie Shaw that's a girl who starts turning into glass. Mm. So like people do it now, but I think now it's, people are much keener i think today to put things in genres and put things in the right shelf in a bookshop sure. and i think maybe in the 20s there wasn't so much that feeling that things have to fit into certain categories yeah so i'm all, i'm always pro it but i think probably marketing departments of publishing houses aren't <laughs> 
Yeah, because I was thinking it was... I don't really know how you would try to market this book. And I think this kind of comes into like how Warner depicts witchcraft itself in the book. Because it's not explicit. It, you, you never have her sit down and like, oh, I must open up this potion book. I need to like, find <laughs> she this have a wand. leaf and this... Yeah. Yeah, no, she doesn't have a wand. The original cover, she's on a broomstick, I believe. But it's not in the book at all, yeah. No, not at all. She doesn't have, like, a witch's hat at any point. Maybe she grows the facial features. (laughs) She describes it as the bugaboo surmises of the public. (laughs) Yeah. Witchly things, which I enjoyed. (laughs) But, like, I don't know how someone in modern literary circles would look at this book and, like, oh, I know how I need to market this. Yeah, I don't even know if it would be published now. Or if, yeah, I, oh, it I would be, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, oh, there would be a lot of notes like, uh, cut the first 90 pages of this 160 page book. <laughs> yeah, I feel like she'd have to become a witch in the first 20 pages or else they yeah. wouldn't accept it. <laughs> or like, it, yeah, it would, it would start at the end and the whole thing would be flashback. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> And I think there's also, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that she was a lesbian. She lived with a woman for, a, I mean, they had a, quite a messy relationship at times, but, but, but mm-hmm. seemed like a, a, a long-time life partner. And I think there's been a lot of attempts to make this a, a queer book, which, you know, in some ways it is, but also I think it's another thing she resists. Mm-hmm. She doesn't make it, you know, there's that one woman at the party where she's like, mm, oh, hi. <laughs> but, oh, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the witch's Sabbath that instead of when she becomes a witch, she's suddenly like the life of the party. No, she's still miserable in the corner. I can't wait yeah, for this yeah, to end. Except yeah. for one woman that she enjoys dancing with. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's like so many things where if, if you try and put it in a category, it, it resists being categorized. And yeah. I think there is an argument that it's a queer book, but I don't think anyone would think it was if it weren't written by a, a lesbian author. Like, <laughs> I'm not sure. sure you get that from it. And so, yeah, so that's sort of just reading back into it and trying to I don't know, make it fit a narrative, I guess. But yeah, it just resists any any sort of imposing a category on it. For you guys who are like more experts on Townsend Warner than I am, is there a book of hers or a short story that is explicitly like about her queer experience or anything like that? Yeah. Well, Summer Will Show is explicitly mm-hmm. lesbian. I mean, not her experience because it's mm. set during the French French Revolution, but yeah. Okay. But that, she did yeah. write about that, but I, that she didn't meet yeah. Valentine until after this book was published, right? That's right, yeah. And she'd had a relationship with a man before yeah. that, yeah. There was a piece published in the London Review of Books a couple of months ago called On Sylvia Townsend Warner, and like 80% of it was about Valentine Auckland. Instead of being about her, and, and it, the two were just kind of next to each other, but didn't really relate in any way, in my opinion. Yeah, that's It's strange. just something people yeah. like doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the personal lives of authors. What can you do? Yeah. And I mean, it was, she did have a fascinating she, Yeah, life. for sure. <laughs> but you're right. Yeah, I think you don't need to know any of that to, to get a lot out of this book. And I don't, and I think it, you know, in some ways, just makes it a more confusing book to read if when you do know that. But, yeah. <laughs> I love part where she makes scones that look like villagers and describes (laughs) um, inviting someone over for tea and the guy kind of snapping into them not really knowing that he's eating people in one way or another (laughs) is is a lovely like domestication of the occult basically isn't it Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, that's that's like a, a beautiful mixture that one little scene and I think that kind of comes back to like the domestication of the occult is a bit set up in the family business that the Willows does, which is brewing alcohol, which has a very potiony, culturally, toil and yeah. trouble <laughs> aspect to it. 
It's a great poem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she they take pains to establish that. <laughs> I wanted to talk about the the subtitle of the book is The Loving Huntsman, which is her kind of moniker for Satan. Mm-hmm. Why 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 call him the Loving Huntsman? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's hunting souls, that's for sure. They depict him as indifferent after he has the soul, after he's hunted the soul and keeps it forever. Yeah, and, and the way they describe it is you you can't even once you have sold your soul to Satan, you are not capable of resisting him, right? So, like, when Laura's in her aunt's state, she can, like, quietly seethe with rage. But when she is a witch, she has no choice but mm-hmm. to accept yeah. her lot. So it's like the huntsman of Satan is, like, loving at the beginning and then indifferent once he's acquired you. Because he no longer—like, there's not a— genuine relationship where two equal parties can leave at any point so he can just be like yep well i got you you're in my cabinet of curiosities and i'm gonna move on and find more <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's the way she says it makes it the subtitle makes it seem a bit like it's like a traditional term for satan which as far as i can tell it isn't it's something she she made up and mm-hmm. i mean is he loving i mean is no. he ever really loving no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, huntsman yeah uh, i mean i like that you've got the uh sort of natural thing the countryside thing there in huntsman feels very of, of you know rural yeah but maybe it's another thing like calling it lolly willows rather than laura willows where the title is itself a commentary on inaccurate perspectives in the novel mm-hmm. i don't know but uh sure yeah it's <laughs> and i guess maybe for someone picking it up thinking it's just going to be a lovely story there's they they're already getting that slight like what's going on when they read the sentence yeah. yeah the first half you're like who's the huntsman what's going yeah i, do. I mean for the first 30 pages you're like where's lolly yeah, yeah. yeah it's true <laughs> <laughs> why have we got this <laughs> long history <laughs> and who knows i mean i guess that's again maybe that's the closest it gets to satire in my mind is is, mm. is satirizing these family saga here's the whole history of the family or even like biographies at the time where they had to tell sure. everything in detail through the, the, the official lineage well let's round this out with i feel like the big question that's been hanging over our heads <laughs> which is uh is lolly willows a feminist manifesto as many have claimed and is laura free by the end of the novel maybe a no mm, mm, maybe a no. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i think that's fair yeah yeah i mean she's definitely not free is she and no I, yeah, i've yeah. said it a couple of times i just find it baffling how often she's portrayed as being free when uh, yeah as you were saying she she can't even want mm. to to not be to not be in this relationship anymore she's completely dominated but she has chosen to be so yeah if if, if you're thinking it's about choice and about picking your freedoms then yes, that's sort of a feminist manifesto. I don't. I want. I want better for women than this being the best that women. Yeah, can let's have. hope. Let's hope. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I don't think anyone should come away from this being like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> thank you for solving solving everything. But um, yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think? I really do think it comes down to like the freedom of choice, and maybe that was a radical sense of female agency in the 1920s but in 2020 it's with with a with a more critical eye than i feel like is given to this book at some points it's it's a bit terrifying more than it is um, <laughs> invigorating in its feminism or anything the free or freedom of a human being or something yeah i mean maybe the feminist manifesto but is is really well describing the problem and it's not got the solution 
Mm. Mm. Which is part of what feminism exists to do. It, it's a, cr- mm. a critical lens that you can see the world through. And it's always evolving, I think. Yeah, it was quite ahead of its time in sort of third wave feminism of of reclaiming the domestic and saying that that is a valid way of being a woman, not uh, which you know the yeah. feminists often didn't hadn't got that fight. It was more like we need to rail against this rather than trying to own it, I guess. Mm-hmm. So that that's interesting that she was again to clarify this is not third wave feminism, but, but yeah, it has, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it has elements uh, of taste of it in there. Yeah. yeah, the middle portion near the end of the domestic half of the book where she has that realization, I think that that's a beautiful depiction of just a person realizing that like maybe a change of middle age like a midlife crisis or just realizing that you need to do something different with your life Mm. and she stands firm against her family in making sure that she's gonna live that out even if she's got half of the money that she was meant to have had because Mm, her mm, mm. brother invested it in some shady ethiopian oh that was hilarious fund (laughs) that that was funny (laughs) (laughs) but then what she does with it it becomes so much it's crooked you know it becomes she could have taken it and just had her be happy living in her cottage by the end once titus is done away with because of the wasps Mm, mm, and mm. he found a girlfriend (laughs) (laughs) but no she she chooses to introduce so many different layers to it and i do wonder if it's sort of like going back to the the maps and the guidebook it's like she drowned the guidebook and she's still discovering what the territory is and the territory is always Mm, mm. shifting and changing and she's like in a dark forest at the end and you're not really sure there isn't a resolution Mm-hmm. What do you guys think happens in like what's happening here in twenty years time? What do you think? Oh, wait, wait, what is Laura up what's, to? What's up in great in great month, what's Laura? What's Laura up to? That is yeah. such a good question. What use does she have for her witch's power? Because she mainly went to get it to get rid of Titus. Yeah, she she yeah, really just uh, she didn't really desire it. She grabbed it in order to solve a problem. I think yeah. maybe what's she has doing? returned to her roots and she's using her still and she's like doing all kinds of concoctions and maybe selling them in the local (laughs) shop. I don't think she's going to the witch's Sabbaths much anymore. No, she's she's not a party (laughs) person. She's done with that. And neither would I be. Whoa, that'd be overwhelming. Um, (laughs) I'm curious uh, on this. Yes. On this point, Cassia, when you picked up this book, were you looking for like any sort of female, you know, meaning or uh, representation. Was that one of the reasons that drew you to this book was sort of this idea that it had been talked about as a book about women's lives and feminism and stuff? Or did you just pick it up because of the, for the heck of it? It probably was. I think I probably liked it in that time period. It was like 2015, 2016. I feel like we were all like, yeah, women, man. Like that was kind of the moment. And I liked the... <laughs> women, man. <laughs> I liked the... Um, <laughs> The concept. And you'd have been just starting college? No, I was just graduating college, but I was, I liked the concept. The concept appealed to me. I just thought, I think it's, it gives you a giggle. Oh, she's an aunt. She has to become a witch. Like, I just think it's a brilliant (laughs) thing. I'd heard so many good things about it. But again, Mm -hmm. I, okay. Coming at it now, I have a much more textured reading and, and I appreciate it for being that. I think it's more useful to me that way than it would be simply as a simple, Mm feminist manifesto Mm -hmm. yeah and i think even having a 
woman in her mid to late forties as a heroine. Yeah, like, that's that's quite feminist. Like you don't. I mean, how many novels now have middle aged women as no. the lead characters? I will say so because it mentions in the book that like this is about like a middle aged um, person, and the book starts at twenty eight, and I'm like. God, that's not middle aged. But that's the thing is, there's so many books, like all the way back to like Sense and Sensibility, where like mm. the older sister's like, oh, what is she, what are we going to do with her? She's like 30. She's one in 20. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I, I felt like, like originally I was in the mind of like, oh, it, that's the middle aged feminism is 28. But then I was really glad that it's like, no, we're going to go 20 years ahead. To what is yeah. more closely accurate to middle age and just be like, <laughs> let's actually look at what this time, time of the life of a woman is like. I think it really fleshed out and, you know, whether this final statement is one of feminism. I think it, it has it takes a feminist viewpoint of just being very honest about the struggles that a woman would have at this time period about society, about herself, about her family. And that's great. Um, Cassie, you said you you're a big Warner head. What what else would you recommend people read? Oh, I just I think the short stories, like you said, are a great place to start. Yeah. I recently read the music at Long Verney, and I mm. I love that because I think a lot a lot of the stories in there have to do with music. And I know she came from a music composition background prior to being a writer, and I think it's her ability to enter into the world of of, of any world that she's writing about, whether it's a convent in medieval times or it's great mop and just get to all those details. And the fact that she knew so much about music, I think those stories really come alive. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Yeah. I've got, I've got that, but I've not read it yet. There's a great one in there about like a, an older woman who finds a painting in an antique shop that was hung on the wall of a home that she lived in as a child. And it's like one of her best stories. I was so excited to find that one because it's Mm. up there with her, her greatest. I, I made Dylan read the children's grandmother a while back. Have you read that one? Oh, I'm sure I have, but I can't remember it's, <laughs> which, um, what happens in that one. <laughs> it's a, a, a widow who lives kind of like this. She's like stuck with a family. She's living with her husband's mother, who's this kind of cold grandmother figure. And they have all the, all the mm. children. Terrifying story. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of like this where nothing explicit necessarily happens, but Warder has such an energy in her writing of like, you're going to feel how this character feels without any explicit terror being directed upon on them. Because quite often we all feel fear when we are just sort of in our mind and thinking about the possibility of what this cold woman could Mm -hmm. be thinking or doing about us rather than that person doing anything in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it it was incredibly effective. What was better was Cassia read that book aloud to me. And so like... Nice. That was was really fun. It's a good one to read aloud. It is a very good read aloud. (laughs) <laughs> Cassie, do you think your favorite novel of hers is Lolly Willows or do you have a different favorite? Is it a corner that helped them? It probably is, but I haven't read them all. So I hope that like I want to read after the death of Don Juan and I hope that uh, I haven't sure. read it yet. I would really, if I can may, I would re- really recommend two of her other books. So there's one, uh, I think her best or my favorite collection of short stories. Well, it was published as Swan in an Autumn River here, but I think published as A Stranger with a Bag in America, mm. which is just really lovely. This includes The Love Match, which is one of her best known short stories, which is about brother-sister incest. So, <laughs> Oh, no. Uh, 
<laughs> I want to like her, but in a in sort of like, isn't it nice sort of way? So, yeah. Um, <laughs> and then there's <laughs> a collection of letters with William Maxwell called The Element of Lavishness. I don't know if you've read any of those, but uh, so he edited, edited The New Yorker and where she, most of her short stories were published. So as a short story writer, she was much better known in America and much it's much easier to find collections of her short stories in America. Actually, I had to ship some over. Oh, wow. Uh, even though she's from from my neck of the woods. Because, <laughs> yeah, a lot of her short stories were never published here. They were just published in the New York. Wow. And then collected. That's surprising. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, those letters, they're, they're, they are friends eventually, but they start off in this sort of editor-writer relationship. And it continues to be this mix of, like, how are the kids? What's going on in your life? But also here are my thoughts on the short stories and here's why we're rejecting this one here's the edits i want for this one it, yeah the letters go to show that warner never had like an off day she was never like <laughs> she never phoned in so i think she just writes amazingly even when it's a letter she presumably never thought would be seen by anyone else though than william maxwell that's I, frustrating I really, really love that collection <laughs> yeah no she i hate her yep. but um but <laughs> <laughs> she definitely sold her soul to the devil to get yeah <laughs> We're near the end. We always finish by saying, is this book a classic or should it stay buried? Uh, I think we're probably all in agreement. This isn't a hard question. It's a classic, baby. <laughs> classic. Yeah, it's a classic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm happy that the book, the book seems to just be getting more and more popular. I continue to hear about it and people rediscovering it. Yeah, I feel like when I first read it, which was about 2007, like it was in print and people knew about it. But yeah, she's becoming quite a cult figure now, I think, or even more than that. And it's, you know, all those other books have come back into print now and more power to her. Hurrah. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Satan is doing his work. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to short this one up to God. <laughs> well, thank you again so much, Simon. It's been a pleasure and an honor. We're really glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's so fun. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Please join us again in two weeks when we discuss My Father and Myself by J.R. Ackerley. And if you've enjoyed the show, give us a follow and please leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. And that's great. Yeah. <laughs> ow. I didn't want to say it, but ow. <laughs>